Welcome to the Lady Palace Podcast. We are your hosts, Bella and Amanda. We're just a couple of gals who are on a mission to shake up the status quo around women's health. Come and delve into the depths with us as we start the conversations to empower, educate, create change and connect you back home into your lady house. Now it's up to every woman to know what's inside of the ovaries, the womb, every part of her vagina. They're different sizes, shapes and all colors. Life starts from a yoni straight from our mothers. Fertility. New creation and the taboo. Let's start a conversation. Your yoni is your homie, so lift her up higher. Ladies, say you're proud. I love my vagina. Woman, power, goddess, flower, lady, palace, click, click, boom. I'm a woman and my body is a temple, and my yoni is connected to my mental. All right, it's the Boom Tang Clan with Valerie Amanda. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lady Palace podcast. In this episode, we were lucky enough to interview the incredibly knowledgeable and entertaining Dr. Nick Lologist. Dr. Nick has been offering obstetrics and gynecology care for the past 39 years and has played a leading role in many pioneering developments in women's health care. Specializing in infertility and multiple miscarriages, endometriosis, and PCOS. This was a really insightful conversation into the work that Dr. Nick does for couples who are having trouble conceiving, his immune suppressant therapies for successful pregnancies, the ins and outs of egg freezing, and so much more. We took so much away from this conversation and really hope that for those of you who are listening and might be struggling to fall pregnant, can do too. As always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Lady Palace podcast. We are extremely grateful to have you on board with your incredible wealth of knowledge. So our listeners... Nick is a IVF and fertility specialist. He's been working in gynecology and obstetrics for 32 years. So we kind of wanted to start off with, I guess, talking about the landscape for the past 32 years and what you've seen over those years and what's kind of been, yeah, kind of integral to your practice. And how IVF has sort of changed over the last 32 years as well. Well, uh, as a young doctor, I went to England for two years training and it was there that I saw Steptoe being acknowledged for the very first baby born through IVF and he had a lot of critics. So he had to find a woman who had no tubes and they did it on a natural cycle. And it took them a long time to get that baby. And I remember his words at the meeting that I went to saying, look to Australia for the next baby. So when I came back to Australia, I was a senior registrar at the Queen Victoria Hospital and we helped uh, another unit, which was the opposition uh, at uh, Melbourne IVF, produce the second baby in the world. And and I was the senior registrar and helping collect eggs and doing all those things, and it was fascinating. And and it was just uh, 
opportunistic that I was there at the time because I was invited by Carl Wood to join the group and was trained as an infertility specialist under his care and mentorship. And it was a bit like uh, an outlier. You know, you seize the opportunity when it comes along, which I did. And I've been doing it since 1981. And the changes that I've seen have just been unbelievable. I mean, from the introduction of um, stimulating women to produce more than the one egg to being able to test the embryos to reducing the number we transfer from six, which was my maximum number in women over 40, to one. Wow. Uh, to being able to use donor eggs, mm. the freezing of eggs, the freezing of embryos, uh, the use of surrogates now for some complex issues. And, and, and just to know that when patients go along and see their doctor, that they should be doing two things. One, do everything, please, doctor, to maximise my chance of a pregnancy in an IVF program and to, to, for the doctor to tell the patient that there's always a solution. Mm, absolutely. It's a, like being on a, it's a bit like being on a, on a train. There are various stops and you can get off at any time, but eventually it will get you to the destination you want to be at, and that is having a family. And some patients don't want to go the full journey. They don't want to use donor eggs or a surrogate or donor sperm, or they run out of money, or emotionally they just give up. But I think that's why we need, as practitioners, to do everything in our power to maximise their chances of a pregnancy in their first go, which is how I practice. Yes, you do. That's what we love about your practice is you do take... Is that a- giving you an overview? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess that's what we love about your practice is that you do take a holistic view as to um, treating your IVF patients and there's many other things that you can do to support that along the way, such as, you know, your lifestyle changes and your meditation and acupuncture. Um, now for us, do you think that fertility is definitely, infertility is definitely on the increase since you've been working, you know, for the last 32 years? Well, I think it is because uh, a lot of women are now putting um, having a family as the second or third option over relationships, travel, career. And we're seeing a lot of women who present uh, at a much later age wanting a child. Um, And it was interesting, at a conference on Saturday, the 10th of August, uh, and I hadn't realised this, but the the most fertile eggs are those in women around the age of 25. Then there's a slight decline to about 34 and then it rapidly declines. So there are issues with uh, fertility in, in women and, and we should be encouraging women to have babies earlier rather than later. And uh, I have seen an increase in the number of older women wanting babies. And it's interesting, I have just seen a little interview that one of my patients gave on the morning show on Channel 7. She was 48 and had twins. And uh, 
she came to me wanting a family uh, at that age and she succeeded in using donor eggs and uh, and was quite open about this and I hope that encourages other women who are of an older age to maybe seek some help if they're prepared to go down the donor egg pathway. And it's interesting because in Chinese medicine, there's a we women go through seven year cycles. Seven, uh, we grow our mature set of teeth. At fourteen, we go through menarche. At twenty one, we have our wisdom teeth. At twenty eight, we're actually considered to be our most fertile. At thirty five, the sages observed that women's fertility would start to decline and that we would start to get wrinkles around our face and observed that our hair was going grey. At 42, they described it as the sea of red being um, our menstrual cycle would start to change quite dramatically. And then at 49, we were going through, we'd reach menopause. So it's interesting to see that correlation that um, we know that for younger women, um, around anywhere between 30, you know, 25 to 32, we are sort of at our most fertile. And that's what you can see also as a fertility specialist. Wow. Well, that's right. And, and, And that's why the success rate is so high in women using donor eggs because they're often from younger women who are donating eggs, especially overseas where they are paid. And what's great as well is to see that success for women um, that are of an older reproductive age, to know that there are other options such as surrogacy. And we see these, you know, amazing results in clinic all the time with the women going over to Greece and doing surrogacy and then having that option of, like you said, you know, being on that train and knowing that there are options out there for you. Always. Yeah. Do you think as well, Dr. Nick, that there is a correlation between infertility and the rise of infertility now these days with environmental factors such as pollution, the kind of toxic air that we breathe in, the water, contamination, and also how it's affecting our you know, food supply and things like that? Is, do you reckon that there's a correlation there? Well, there was a book written about... Uh, men losing their sperm and there was one man, I've just forgotten the name of the book now, they made a movie out of it and and there was one man who had sperm and everybody was after him. But there's no doubt that there is a decrease in sperm counts around the world and I think this is because of pollution and there are toxins that can do this. And there's no doubt that we are living a life full of excess, Mm. smoking, alcohol, obesity, food, and all these give stress to the human and they affect the DNA of the egg and they affect the DNA of the sperm. And and I think lifestyle changes are so important in in infertility that, that we're at fault here. We're not tough enough with our patients. In, in getting them to lose weight, to give up those bad habits that are leading to poor quality seed, poor quality eggs and poor quality sperm. And I think we, we need to re-educate the doctors about being a bit tougher. And I, I see it all the time, women with BMIs that are above 35 coming in to have their eggs collected. And sure, we'll get them pregnant, but all the other complications that occur with women who are overweight, who are pregnant, the effect that that will have ongoing on their offspring. 
So it, it's, um, it is a problem. Mm, but I think you're right. There are environmental changes that are affecting our facility. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well to look to the men as well for their sperm quality because that can be such a thing that we straight away just look to the women and, you know, want to solve their problems and work on them for them. Well, it's it's, uh, sorry. No, but it is such a great reminder as well for the men to, you know, check their sperm quality and that should be part of it. That's the holistic kind of care as well. Well, you can do a simple semen analysis, but if it's normal, 10% of those men will have poor quality semen. And there's a special DNA fragmentation test that is available now in Australia, which will determine how good that sperm is. And if there are lifestyle issues and there is poor DNA integrity, well, it's very obvious what needs to be done. Yeah. You, know, you, you lose weight, you exercise, you stop smoking, you yeah. come off the recreational drugs if you're using them. Mm. That's a question that a lot of doctors don't ask their patients. That's Are you using recreational drugs? Mm. We do see a lot. I it's a hard question to ask. Mm. Yeah. Because that affects the overall quality of the sperm and then, like you said, the DNA fragmentation. Um, and yep. we know that it takes two to tango. So in order to have, um, and that also then affects the fertilisation rates as well, doesn't it, with poor sperm quality yep. and motility? Absolutely. Yeah. And so Absolutely. the fellas also need to be looked at as well. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> well, I think they've been forgotten a little bit, but one in three infertile couples have a male factor problem. So 30% of all infertility patients I see, there are male issues that are causing the infertility, low sperm counts, poor motility, infections, uh, antibodies against the sperm. And these, are the, 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 these couples just can't achieve a spontaneous pregnancy. And back in, seven, in the 70s, the only help that these men or these couples had was to either continue trying and, and hope and pray or to use donor semen. And a lot of men... Most men, the thought of using donor semen, mm. sort of, you know, they go, they go white, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be in my bag. I mean, women are much more accepting. Yeah. Women are much more accepting of using donor eggs. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, there are some men who are very sensible and, and believe uh, that they probably need to move on to donor sperm. But... It takes a bit more encouragement and persuasion by the doctor to get them down that pathway, to get them to come off on that stop mm. on the train ride. And so in clinic, we see a lot of, you know, we have parameters that we work by for our patients. And so we have them do hormonal profiling and pelvic ultrasounds and specific blood tests. And we also have them track their cycle and use the method of the fertility awareness method. So the BBT charting. And what I see a lot of in clinic is that on paper, everything's looking really good. So the husband's done a semen analysis all the um, parameters there are looking good for women. Uh, their hormones, their progesterone levels are high enough in their luteal phase. And 
thyroid's looking good and they're having sex at all the right time. So we, we've determined their ovulation window. Um, but then what's happening is that they're, they're having sex at all the right times, but they're not falling pregnant. So we're seeing like repeated failed implantation um, or what they are having is they're having sex at all the right times. They do go on to conceive, but then they're having um, repeated pregnancy loss. Um, and I know that, you know, this is something that you work with um, is the natural killer cell. Um, so, Nick, I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about that if you're able to share with us um, that sort of like immunotherapy uh, that you're doing. Um, could you talk to us a little bit more about the natural killer cells? Well, let, let me give you the history of this because I think the history is important. When we started doing IVF, we just thought that we'd get everybody prepped. And it would be just a matter of time if we repeated and repeated the same treatment. Um, it would eventually happen. And for some women, that is correct. But for a majority of women, they have recurrent implantation failure. And about 21 years ago, one of my patients who I had great success with in her first six cycles, we had a baby. She had a Turner syndrome that she terminated and lost twins. And for four cycles, nothing happened. And she went to America. Her husband was American and she came back pregnant, and which I thought was fantastic. And she told me that over there they gave her steroids, aspirin and antibodies before the embryo transfer. And I decided to follow that technique. It was given empirically, and I called it the Colorado. And lo and behold, I started to get pregnancies. And that got me thinking, well, why is it working? And my research led me to read some articles about hostility towards the embryo by the mother's immune system. So I spoke to Maxine Stolwin from Anapath, and we said, well, what level of natural killer cells which are the cells that predominantly um, occupy the endometrial lining, uh, would we accept as normal? So we set upon a figure and I started testing. And I then realised that there are a lot of women having recurrent implantation failure or pregnancy loss that have elevated levels of natural killer cells in their endometrium. Now, but some people that? look in the blood... Can I interrupt there quickly? And can you just tell us what are the role of natural killer cells normally when they're well, not elevated? But, well, we all have them and they all protect you against viruses and they protect you against bacteria and they attack cancer cells. So they're, there, they're part of your immune system. They're there to help protect. But like other issues, autoimmune issues, they sometimes become overactive for some reason they take offence at the embryo, for example, and they multiply and they see the embryo as foreign and they attack it. That's my theory anyway. That's, that's how I view it. So I then introduced suppression therapies to try and help women that were having problems. And lo and behold, it seemed to work. And I did a retrospective study, and it was an abstract at a European conference which showed an increase in pregnancy rates if we suppress the immune system. Mm. But there's not a lot of support for it around the world, I must add. Although more recently there has been some 
increased interest in the immune system and its role in infertility. And if you think about it, when the embryo goes into the uterus, it's a foreign object. It has genetic material from the husband, yet we tolerate it. We turn on an immunological switch and we tolerate this embryo and it implants and it grows into a baby. But if you don't have which turned on, then it's the embryo is exposed to the immune system, the natural killer cells, which will attack it. And so the purpose of giving patients the immune suppression was to suppress the immune system and allow the embryo to implant. We right there. Okay. Two seconds. Sorry, got it. Okay, turned it off. <laughs> okay. And so and so, what happened then after that? I I um, uh, did some more research and came across um, some work done by a man who's dead now, um, Alan Beer, and then that led me to Jeffrey Sher in America and Jeffrey Braverman. And they were very interested in the immune system and the, um, the, the tissue compatibility between husband and wife. And so I looked into this and I decided that in 2013 that I would start doing lymphocyte immune therapy or lymphocyte membrane immune therapy. And what was the purpose of that? Well, if couples share certain genes... When the embryo goes into the uterus and it sends a message to the host, look after me, turn on that immunological switch so that I don't get attacked by your immune system, the host looks at the embryo and sees self because it recognises genes in that embryo that it has itself or she has herself and she doesn't turn on that switch and the embryo is exposed to the immune system and gets attacked. If you inject the husband's white cells into the skin of the uh, female partner, then the, her immune system produces the immune cells called T-regulator cells and blocking antibodies that protect the embryo. And so from 2013, I've been giving women with tissue compatibility with their husbands this therapy. And... I've had lots of pregnancies from it, as you know, yes. and, and some spontaneous pregnancies. But that's not enough. You have to suppress the immune system at the same time. So they go hand in hand. And, you know, when I started this therapy, which is banned in America, I might add, but practised almost everywhere else in the world, you have your, you know, misgivings, you, you worry about it. Will I do harm? But after six years and so many pregnancies and no complications whatsoever, uh, it's a relatively um, simple procedure. Um, and my recent research suggests that even if there isn't tissue compatibility in patients that are having recurrent pregnancy loss or repeated implantation failures, that may also now be therapy for them. Right. So I may have to readdress this and maybe start thinking that uh, maybe for those patients where the DQ alpha gene testing shows that they are incompatible, that maybe they would benefit from lymphocyte membrane and immune therapy. So I'm always looking at new things to to do to try and help uh, women. And 
I've just returned from Greece where a colleague of mine is injecting perimenopausal ovaries with platelet-rich plasma to try and rejuvenate whatever eggs are left in the ovary. And he's had eight pregnancies. Wow. And now these women were desperate to have some, a baby with their own genetic material. So I've done a few cases here in Melbourne, so I'm just waiting to see what happens, whether that'll stimulate the ovary to work a bit better. Um, but it's, you know, those are the things that I think about all the time to try and help them. And I think, I mean, what what is really amazing about the work that you do is that you do think outside the square, but it's also too, it's the evolution of medicine as well. You know, it has to constantly keep evolving. Um, as Bella was saying, you know, our environment is under constant assault and so that therefore is going to affect our overall immune system as well. And I think that what I find interesting is that in Vedic philosophy, um, we go through three phases in life and there's the maintenance, then there's creation, and then there's destruction. And it's kind of like a virus, like viruses will evolve over time, won't they? And they mutate. And so it's the same, I think, like with our immune system as women with, our, with the natural killer cells. It's, you know, there has to be a reason why there is such this increase. And I think that, um, you know, if we look at our environment is that the earth is mother creation and as women we are the creators as well. And so it's almost like this, you know, well, you know, uh, is, the, is the environment, is nature, because nature is supreme, is nature willing to allow, you know, more babies onto the earth because of the current status that it's in? And so hence women being the creators, it's almost like this destruction's taking place. And I think you know, the point that you reiterated earlier is that's why it is so important that we have to take it into our own hands in terms of all the things that we can do to support our fertility. And this even begins before even having a family, I think, for, for women and men to really learn to be able to treat their bodies like mm. a temple. And, you know, like you said, cutting out the alcohol, putting the right nutritious foods in, going organic if you can. Mm. So really taking care of ourselves. I was only talking to an anesthetist this morning when we were operating together about obesity and he was chatting to a nurse that he works with at another hospital and the nurse was complaining about how she was finding it difficult to lose weight. And he gave her a bit of advice and he went to the canteen to get a coffee and there she was buying a 600 ml bottle of coca-cola and some other hot food fried and he thought to himself you know you'll never lose weight if you can't control your eating and and unfortunately we are obsessed because we're so i suppose uh lucky to be in australia where food is fantastic we eat too much mm. And we need to control what we eat. And, you know, um, it's just up here. It's, a, it's willpower about how much you eat, how much you drink. And some people just don't have the willpower. And that's where mindfulness, I think, can play a role. And, and it's know, amazing because you're such a pioneer in this holistic kind of mentality as well and thinking outside of the square and incorporating kind of other um modalities and things in as well into your practice but 
Do you think that this is something that all medicine is on par with or do you think that there are sort of, um, I guess, like there's a bit of hesitation from other doctors to look into the work that you do or do you think that one day that everyone's going to be able to see fertility the way that you do? Well, you, I think there's a trend in the world to look more closely at the immune system. Um, you have to be passionate about um, infertility and have the resources to do what I do. Like I have four um, nurses who work for me who do a lot of the intralipids, a lot of the LMIT, a lot of the behind-the-scenes work with patients that I send all over the world for donor eggs. And you need that team to be able to do it. You just can't do it by yourself. And and that means you have extra wages and all the other things that go with having a big cohort of people in the team. And some people aren't prepared to do that. Um, I know some doctors um, are using my protocols in 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 other air in other hospitals, but that's okay. I'm happy for them to do that. Um, but there is a reluctance to go down that pathway because there's no evidence-based medicine or randomised controlled trials to support what I do. That's fair enough. But and I mentioned this at a meeting on Saturday at the, at the Epworth conference that was held at the Park Hyatt, that, yes, I agree that there is no um, randomised controlled trials, but I pointed out that it is very hard in IVF to do randomised controlled trials because yeah. the women don't want to be the control. They don't want the... Yeah. <laughs> if they hear on social media that I did this and it worked, they don't want to be a control. They want the treatment. They just want to know what works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so so I have a a list of adjuvant drugs that I give to all my patients, which detail every drug that I give and the um, effect, the side effects, any dangers to it. Then they sign off on all these drugs because I want them to be aware uh, that these are the drugs and they're safe. And, and and so that there are no complaints later on. And the government wants us to actually do this now and they are going to approve any adjuvant drugs that we want to use in the future. Well, that's a win. That's and, fantastic. And, and so the, the reality is that I believe that if you do something that may help some women uh, and it is safe, then why not do it? Exactly. It's not as if, you know, and, and I've had patients who have come to me and they said, I asked for that test to be done or I asked for to be given something and they said, no, because I don't believe in it. Well, that's their right. They don't have to believe in it. But I don't think you should deny a patient the opportunity of trying something if something else is not working. That's my attitude. So do you think as well then going forward then it would be sort of a reform into the educational system of medicine? Uh, I think that we are trained badly, number one. They've tried to 
improve it by the extensive auditioning that would-be medical students have to go through. They'd like to pick out the better personalities to go through um, medicine who interview well. But I don't think that we are really taught how to cope with our own emotions when we are counselling people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at my age, it's very easy. I've been there, done that. I've learnt the hard way. And I can say bluntly to people, you're wasting your time. You need to move and do this or mm-hmm. you need to do that. Or have you really thought about what you're trying to do here? Uh, and be very upfront with the patient. And for a young doctor, that can be quite daunting because oh. uh, you don't want to lose the patient. You're setting up a practice, and I can see that that ability to be very honest and open and caring at the same time for patients is something that isn't taught. Mm. Also, when I was a medical student, I was told that pregnancy was unique in that the host, the mother, showed immunological tolerance to the embryo. I mean, we've known this for years, yet nobody stops to think that maybe the immune system is playing a role in infertility yeah. as well. And if that's going back to the basics, isn't it, that, of what that's you did in your first basics. years in medicine? That's right. That's right. That's right. So, and, you know, I was a cynic too, you know, but, you know, you, you keep an open mind, you, you do things, and if they work and you realise, God, it's working. And there's some things that start. evidence there. Yeah, yeah, there's anecdotal evidence. And, not every, and there was an article in the fertility sterility about evidence-based medicine and how, uh, comparing it to other evidence that may not be a randomised controlled trial, but you just can't ignore it. And, and I just remind some of my younger colleagues who I trained who are very set in their ways that when I started doing IVF in the 80s as a registrar with Carl Wood, We'd sit around the table and we'd say, why don't we do this? Oh, Oh, that's a good idea. Well, there's no evidence-based medicine. There was no randomised controlled trial about IVF in those days. We just did it. And if it worked, we continued. If it didn't work, we changed. For example, Carl goes, why don't we give women 1,200 units of FSH rather than 600? Well, we did that for a few months and found that it was very bad for women and it didn't give us more eggs. It gave us less eggs. So we stopped doing that. And so at least we tried it. And the maximum dose we ever gave was, I think, 1,800 units to one a few women. And, and it was a bit like when we decided to grow the embryos out to day five. Yes. Carl and I had a small group of patients and we showed in our 80 patients that we had a 45% pregnancy rate, but there was a lot of attrition. We lost a lot of eggs. We lost a lot of embryos. We hadn't got the methods right to grow them to day five, and our colleagues weren't all that keen to go down that pathway where they would have to explain to patients, well, you're not going to have a transfer because there are no embryos, or of the 20 eggs we've gotten, only one got to the day five stage, and it was very difficult. And, and so Alan Trounson and I took this technology to Athens and my colleague in Athens flew with this. She thought this was fantastic. The Greeks are very competitive over there. <laughs> and, he, and his clinic 
is the biggest clinic in Athens now based on the fact that he was the first in, in, in Athens to be able to grow embryos out to day five. And one of our embryologists stayed with him for a few years. And that's the link I have with Greece and donor eggs that he looks after my patients very, very nicely. And we have a very high pregnancy rate in patients going over there for donor eggs in the vicinity of 70 to 75% first go, which is not bad. That's amazing. That is incredible. Yeah. That's a very now, remember, a lot of those patients also have got other issues. So I've I've trained him in immunotherapy over there. So my patients, if they go over there and they've got issues, he gives them the treatment that uh, they have back here in Melbourne. It's complex. It's incredible. Yeah, it is complex. Um, yeah. and I have to admit that my. My staff are fantastic and, and all my patients when they travel overseas have a calendar which basically tells them what to do every day, what drugs to take and what they have to do. And it makes it very simple. They just get their calendar out and they know exactly what they have to do with all the drugs listed and it works quite well. Well, because that's like a full-time job. Mm. <laughs> it is a full-time job. But, you know, I always say to them... And, and the best example I can give, and I think this is where you two play a big role and, and, and all Chinese medical and medicine practitioners and physiotherapists and naturopaths and everything, is that if you have positive mindfulness when you approach uh, the, the, the treatment of fertility or infertility, it is so important. And I had one example of a patient who came to me for a second opinion and she was as miserable as anything. And I said, for Christ's sake, I'm not going to treat you anymore. I want you to go away and come back and see me with a bloody smile on your face because you're just too upset, too anxious, too angry. So she goes off for three-month holiday and little thing comes back and she's spontaneously pregnant. Wow. Because wow. she's happy. That's incredible. <laughs> and these stories happen all the time. And people often... You know, they, they, they send me a card to thank me for their baby and I look at my history and I've seen them once. Oh. And they come to see me for a second opinion and the next thing they're pregnant. And I think people need a plan. They need a positive. There's no good patting somebody on their head and saying, it'll be okay, come back in a year's time and, and, and if you're not pregnant by then, people don't want to hear that. They want a plan. We're going to do this. And if this doesn't work, we're going to do that. They need a, a positive plan a positive attitude they know where that train is heading mm, they do definitely yeah i need to know that yeah and so nick uh, no 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 we love we've <laughs> got so much knowledge and wisdom to share we love it um can you share with us some tips for a woman to be able to help get her oven ready Okay, well, obviously losing weight, don't drink too much, don't smoke, uh, be fit. There's no doubt that uh, they've shown that all those things, if you are fit and you're not too heavy, not too uh, uh, obese, and if you uh, don't smoke and drink, that'll improve your air quality. Um, obviously having a regular cycle is important and having uh, sex at the right time. But it's always a bit hard um, and people go out and buy ovulation kits and all those sorts of things, and it becomes a little bit too um, complicated. Yeah, yeah stress. So, if you have a twenty-eight day cycle, 
you're ovulating 14 days before that period. So day 14 plus or minus two. So if you have sex from day 10, 12, 14, 16, you'll cover every possibility. Now, sperm lasts 72 hours, so does the egg. So the egg is sucked into the tube and it sits there like the Death Star in Star Wars. And Luke Skywalker has to swim all the way up to it to get in, right? So so it's probably better not to have sex every day but to have sex every second day. And you need to get the sperm up there in numbers. And, 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 and this happens because sperm is ejaculated at a very fast speed and whips into the uterus. Now, not all of it gets into the uterus and some will come out. Remember, Quickly on that one, how fast does it travel again? I know you... 135, 135 miles an hour. Oh, my God. Really fast. <laughs> really fast. So it gets stuck in there and... And, 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 and a lot of it will come out of the vagina and women often get worried about that and they like to lie with their bum up in the air and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's, it, it's over. The sperm's already gone in there. And if you've got plenty of sperm, that's why you have plenty of sperm, it'll get to the egg. Now, normally we put about 40,000 sperm around an egg when we inseminate in the normal way. And that's all you need. So, you know, men have got between 15 and 100 million sperm per mil. So the average ejaculation is about, say, five mils. In a wild pig, to give you an example, it's 135 mils. I don't know why a wild pig needs that much, but... Oh, my gosh. That's a lot. That's a glass. How do you know that? <laughs> uh, you pick up these little facts and you, yeah. they just stay in your mind. Uh, and so for most people, you have intercourse, 85% of the population will have a pregnancy within 12 months. And that's fantastic. Just, you know, having sex once a week will do it for most people. Uh, and, and when people come to see me and, and they don't want to do IVF or they don't particularly want to do IUI, they want to do something a little bit more natural. You can track the cycle and you can release the egg um, after you've done an ultrasound. That could be on Clomid or another fertility ovulation drug. So that's like an, then, ovule, that's an ovulation induction there, isn't that? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can do Clomid or Letrozole. You do a scan at day 10. If the follicle is growing, you can release the egg and tell them to have sex 40 hours later, just once. So there are two little stories. When you first see a patient with infertility and you say you've got to have sex from day 10, 12, 14, 16, you can see the smile on the husband's face, you know, like this, fantastic. <laughs> he puts the calendar up on the fridge so all his mates can see, you know, I'm having sex this many times. <laughs> but when they've been trying for, when they've been trying for a while and you say, you know, you gotta have sex, yeah, day ten, twelve and I look at each other, I go, Oh Jesus. I said, okay, okay, okay. I'll make it easy for you. How about having sex just once in the month? They go, Yeah, that sounds good, Doc. That works well. 
a lot of couples struggle to have sex regularly when they're trying for a pregnancy. You know, it becomes a chore. It's not, it's not the joy that it was when they were young and they just met and Clinical. fell in love and the all that sort of, period. Yeah. yeah, the honeymoon period is gone now. You know, it's business. You know, oh, Jesus again. Bye. Uh, and, so, and so, this this treatment is where. We track the egg, release it, and then they have sex 40 hours later. From the moment you give the trigger injection to release of the egg is about 36 hours. Mm. So if and you have sex 40 hours after the injection, that egg will be there ready. And the type of women that you see um, that do an ovulation induction, these sort of women that have um, issues such as anovulation or difficulty. Sure, sure. The egg yeah, yeah, exactly. The ones with irregular cycles are the ones that do better with ovulation induction and pregnancy. We thought that ovulation induction increased the chance of a pregnancy in women who had regular cycles. But they've done some very big studies. And whilst I have the occasional pregnancy in giving ovulation induction agents to women with regular periods, the evidence suggests that it's by chance alone and it's not significant in terms of success. But there are some couples who don't want to go down the IVF pathway. So you, and I think there's that, nothing to lose in giving them the tablets. And I think it's a nice introduction to um, the ovulation sure. induction before, you know, because then it's like once they've tried that and they're not having success, then they're, they're more comfortable then with going down the IVF route. Well, it, if I have a 29-year-old or 30-year-old, if I have a 29-year-old or 30-year-old and and uh, all the evidence suggests that we should move to IVF, in other words, they've got unexplained infertility, they've been having sex for 12 months, nothing's happened, mm. then the recommendation by the college and infertility specialists is that you now move to IVF regular periods, regular intercourse, the tubes are open, normal semen, you move to IVF. And, and, and some of them don't want to do that. So because their age is 30, 32, you've got time on your hands. You could let them have climate for four to six months, as you said, introduce them to that first, and then if that doesn't work, you move on to IVF. But if they're 38, I don't think you have that luxury. Mm. And, and I'm a bit tougher with them. I say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to move straight to IVF because of your age. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing is that we always thought that men's sperm was sort of forever, forever young. Yeah. But no, you get to 41 and that starts to decline as well. So, for men, it's important that they have their families early rather than later. Mm. Having had one at 50, um, uh, that was a worry that I had. How normal would my child be? Mm, because there is, there is some research that's come out um, and it's talking about the quality of men's sperm in links to uh, autism and yeah. then ADHDs and it's so... Yeah. For men aged yeah. over 46, I think it was. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's estimated that when you get to 41, you you have a problem with uh, your sperm quality. So 
the younger the better. So the lesson out of all of this is yeah. <laughs> we should be having children when we're younger. Earlier. Yeah. Earlier. Yeah. Now we've just got to try and meet the man earlier. <laughs> Well, uh, what we haven't spoken about is that there are more and more women now freezing their eggs uh, because they want to uh, have a baby, but they haven't found Mr. Right and they're worried about it. So when I operate on patients with endometriosis, I know that their egg count will be lower than women without endometriosis. So I always say to them, when they get to about, because they often come back to you for ongoing care, when they get to around 24, 25, maybe we should think about freezing eggs if they're not in a relationship. And I've done that on a number of women. So to freeze your egg, you're best doing it before you're 32 and you should have about 20 eggs in the fridge. Okay. That might give you one or two babies. Well, I think... So, positive out of all of that as well as it's an investment in your future too and mm. I think it's something that yeah. women should we should be considering you know mm. if we haven't met our partner uh, definitely something to to look towards um, and we're seeing more of a trend in clinic as well with younger women um, deciding to freeze their eggs it's an egg vestment <laughs> Amanda, that's right I think that there, there could be a very powerful lobby um, I believe that the government should fund a program mm. where women aged 24 to 26 can freeze, have one freezing cycle at no cost to them. Mm. No cost. The eggs are frozen. Yeah. That's their insurance policy. If they don't meet Mr. Right and they want to use those eggs, they then pay for them. And it's also... To, I have the chance of freezing them. The thing is, I mean, and you'd be the same as well, the reason why a lot of women have to do surrogacy is because of that very reason is that, we, ha you know, they hadn't had the chance to meet their partner um, and then when they did meet their partner, they're in their 40s and, you know, and then and then they have to go down the path of IVF and surrogacy. So I think it's well, an initiative. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, they don't have to go down the pathway of surrogacy. Unless they have complications, you know. Yeah, well, if, if they have a problem with their uterus or no uterus yeah. or they um, uh, have other immune issues that uh, means that they need to have a surrogate. But uh, I'm often asked by menopausal women who come to see me, uh, well, well, I need a surrogate doctor. And I say, you've bought a log cabin in the mountains and hasn't been used for 10 years, but there's a stove there. And you put the logs in the stove and you light it up and guess what? The oven works. And it's exactly the same for a menopausal uterus. You can stir it up by giving hormones and getting it ready. So the oldest woman that I've delivered was 53. Amazing. Wow. Awesome. And, and menopausal, donor egg, uh, husband sperm, the womb worked, and I have a country in Europe that will treat any woman with donor eggs at any age. Most of the European countries have an age limit of about 50. But we can go to Albania 
and any of your age girls. <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh, I'm done now. I'm done. <laughs> I might have to freezing my eggs. You picked an interest there. Well, I think it would be something that, uh, um, you know, it would be good advice for mothers to give their daughters that uh, too young, no, you want them to be adults and you want them to maximise their chances by freezing them at the time when their eggs are going to be the best, yeah. you know, 24, 26. And, and if they haven't got a boyfriend then, then they'll have that as an insurance policy. Yeah. You hope that they never use it, but, you know, yeah. they may need it. I think we used that... to free ovarian tissue oh. uh, before we developed the technique of freezing eggs. And, and, and we've had a few pregnancies from that. But eggs are probably the way to travel. There's a company that's just been set up in England where they're going to take whole ovaries out and freeze them and put the ovary back in so you keep all your eggs. Oh, my God. I don't know whether that's going to That's a lot. It's, it's, so, it's you know, yeah. medicine it's is futuristic, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, it? I wouldn't have thought they would be able to do uterine transplantation, but they're doing them now for women that have had a problem with their uterus. So, um, you know, who knows what's going to be possible. It may be that we'll be having embryos grown in some artificial womb mm, you yeah. won't even have to carry it yeah now they can grow meat in laboratories yeah. just from a single cell yeah anything is possible oh, that's but the, the thing that i'm researching now and and uh i don't know how far away we are from doing this but just imagine if we could create eggs out of your stem cells Yes, that's amazing. If we can create eggs out of your stem cells, then age wouldn't matter. No, it wouldn't matter. It wasn't, and that would be that would just be, imagine that. Do you think there's research groundbreaking? There's research in that now. Do you think so with the stem cells? We're trying to do that now. We're trying to do that now. Oh. Great. So, and what was the, the one that you just said before um, at the beginning of our conversation today uh, was the technique that you've just started doing here to reignite the... replacement, PRP. PRP. Yes. They've used that for joints. They've used that for a whole range of other conditions. Yes. So, this doctor thought he'd stick some into the ovary and see if it would rejuvenate. So, he's had eight pregnancies out of a, quite a large number that he's done he's had them coming from all over the world to have this prp injected into the ovaries and i uh, the lab that i use to do my stem cell therapy and my lmit uh, uh, produces this pro platelet which plasma quite easily and i just inject the mill into each ovary and i've only done it to a couple of patients so we'll see what happens incredible These are women women with very low levels of uh, AMH or very few follicles in their ovaries, and some of them are around the menopause. But, you know, these are women that are desperate to have a baby with their eggs. For me, I think any baby is, is beautiful, and whether it's with 
there's a, 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 a YouTube video of one of my patients talking about her trip to Athens where she and her husband had tried here in Melbourne for many, many attempts and they went over there and used both donor sperm and donor egg. Mm. And when she had that baby in her arm, she said, it doesn't matter mm. about the genetics. I'm a mother. This is my family. That's and right. that's the sort of message I try to impart to all my patients, you know, that's, that's so what they should be thinking of. Um, that gives me shivers. I think that was that beautiful Madeline that shared. That's beautiful Madeline, yeah, Daddy. she shared that story. Um, and so, you know, these are, I have lots of stories like that. And, and, uh, and to give you another example, I had a lady yesterday who came in to see me. She was having her last intralipid for her natural killer cells and she's gone off to a public hospital and the doctors there uh, were aghast at all the medications that she was on and, and, and she said, it got me here. Mm. This is my first pregnancy. So and don't say anything. I feel, yeah. you know what, and that's it, right, because at the end of the day it dissolves everything. You know, it's mm. almost like women say, it doesn't even feel like I went through IVF. It's like I have my baby, I have my miracle in my arms, and like you said, that's all that matters at the end of the day. And uh, that's what we're here for is to help support women on their journey through their, their fertility journey to help create these wonderful, amazing families. Well, the next thing, uh, Amanda, is that um, I've taken that other step now because I believe that the battle between the immune system and the embryo may continue through the whole pregnancy. So if I have a patient who comes in to see me who's had a previous premature labour, small baby, um, uh, premature rupture of the membranes, um, other complications, uh, I sometimes wonder whether it's because this battle has been raging. So I'm now treating women with this suppression through to 30 weeks, 32 weeks, mm. especially, and there's a lady that has gone down to Geelong. She's now 14 weeks and they're going to continue her treat until 28 to viability because there's always that risk of a mid-trimester abortion mm-hmm. or a stillbirth. And, and, and I think that, uh, that's my next area of, of investigation. Do women who have very small babies or all the complications, is that because the battle continues to happen? And maybe we need to think about this immune suppression in these patients a bit longer. Pregnancy. Well, it's a, it's a minefield, isn't it? It's an ever-growing... It never stops. Never stops. It's never going to stop. Uh, uh, and I'm always looking at newer drugs. I've added two new drugs to the to the regime. One is called tacrolimus, and this is used in organ transplantation, and it creates uh, T-regulator cells to protect the embryo. And the other is naltrexone, low-dose naltrexone, and that's a uh, drug used in the management of uh, uh, addiction. And in low doses, it seems to help everything. Because I've been doing some research on it myself and it's quite amazing. So they're using it now for autoimmune conditions such as thyroid because it helps Correct. the inflammation in the body. So, yeah. 
So yeah. I've used it. And in fact, I had a patient who came to see me and I said, look, I'm sorry you didn't get pregnant. And he said, I don't care about that. All my pains have gone. She had an autoimmune condition which gave her sort of joint pain. So there are some benefits. Amazing. Not, not everybody tolerates it though. So so they're the things that I'm, I'm uh, uh, looking at and um, I keep on reading and, and, and making sure that... Uh, I put a bit of embryo glue inside the uterus now before embryo transfer on all my other patients, and that's a simple procedure, and I think that that's working and uh, just proliferates the lining cells in the uterus, making it sticky. So that's something else. That nice, so it's got a nice, receptive, beautiful endometrium for the little embryo to call itself home. That's what we want. That's what we want. Well, Dr. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. We're so grateful for you coming and sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with us and our listeners. My pleasure. This will have many new insights and takeaways from this, and I feel like I've learned so much from this. So we're so grateful to have you on. My pleasure. We'll we'll, um, put some resources and we'll let you know when the podcast is coming out. We'll also um, link through some of your YouTube videos as well. So okay. And have a, have a look. And where to find you? And if we do have listeners that are on a fertility journey and they have been trying and now looking to the next step, we'll include where to find you and when to come and see you. Okay. All right. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Enjoy. Bye. 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 This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.